0: Turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12, our sermon text for this morning is Genesis 12, verses 1 through 9, so we're going a, a, a little further than we did last week, and before we read that together, let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that we are bound for the promised land, and uh, that we are pilgrims and strangers on earth, just like our father Abraham. And uh, we'll get to think about that in just a moment. And we pray that you, by your spirit, would work in our hearts to show us Jesus. Show us Jesus in the scriptures. Show us the hope that we have in Jesus in the scriptures. Remind us of the inheritance that is ours and uh, enable us by your power, through your promises, to persevere Uh, in the present, in hope of things to come. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, "'Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing.'" I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran, and Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his brother's son and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. Life is difficult. Uh, Nothing I say will take away that difficulty, but uh, difficult doesn't have to mean unnecessarily complicated. parts of life are complicated. Uh, My head swirls quite often with things I just can't figure out. Uh, Really, anything having to do with money or taxes is a bit of an enigma to me. Uh, Life, I think particularly in the modern age, is often extremely complicated. But living the Christian life does it not have to be. When we look at Abraham, or Abram, uh, we get a simple picture of the pilgrimage of faith. Now, simple is not the same as easy. Uh, Something can be simple but really hard. Just think about hula hoops. (laughs) Nothing could be simpler. It's a hoop, period. No buttons, no lights, no batteries, but it is not easy. Not for me, anyway. Uh, neither is simple the same as simplistic. Uh, something that is simplistic, the moment you go an inch deeper, the system falls apart. Uh, the simplistic can't hold the weight of the details. Uh, but there can be a complicated depth to simple. A soccer ball is a ball, it's a sphere. But when you look close, it's a complicated sphere. Right? The standard soccer ball is made up of 32 polygons, 12 pentagons and 20 hexagons. In fact, it even has a fancy name. It's a truncated icosahedron. I had to practice that. The 32 polygons don't take away from the spherical shape of the soccer ball. It's still just a ball, after all. But they do give it an additional layer of complicated depth and beauty. You step back, it's a sphere, you get close, it's a truncated icosahedron. I find that kind of thing fascinating. Well, the Christian life is a pilgrimage, a journey from here to there. That's simple. And what we will see in Abraham's life this morning is that this journey involves just three things heed God's call, believe God's promises, and worship in the meantime. It's not simplistic, it's not easy, but it is simple. And in these uh, three things we have the, the pre- prerequisite for, and the power for, and the content of the Christian life. Heed God's call, believe God's promises, and worship in the meantime. So first, the the prerequisite. Heed God's call. Why is change so hard? We live in a society that is obsessed with change. Self. Help books abound. There are new books coming out every day about the power of habit and tiny habits and atomic habits, books promising that you can change. Alcoholics Anonymous has over 50,000 support groups nationwide. That's a lot of people wanting a different life. People are in groups to help them eat better, get more exercise, become better men, learn a new skill. People do want to change. Why is it so hard? People make New Year's resolutions every year, and everyone knows they're not going to keep them. I want to change. I want to be a better follower of Jesus, a better husband, a better father, pastor, friend. I want to take better care of my body. Why is change so hard? Well, let me suggest three things, and they're not the only things, but three big ones. And uh, they directly relate to our text this morning. And that is that people feel uh, tied to their past, powerless in the present, and unsure about the goal. They know they want to be somewhere else, but they're not quite sure where that is. Well, how does the Abraham story speak into this? Well, our text begins with the call in Genesis 12.1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I I want to start by asking three questions about this call. What did God call Abram to do? When did he do it? And why was it so hard? So first, what did God call Abram to do? God called Abram to leave, to leave everything he had ever known and to go to a place that God would show him. Meaning, Abram was called to leave the comfort of the known and head out for the unknown. Hebrews eleven eight makes that explicit. It says Abram, Abraham went out not knowing where he was going. So Abram was called to leave everything, the familiar for the unfamiliar, the known for the unknown, his family to follow God. The second, when? When did he do it? It may seem like an irrelevant question, but. Uh, what difference does it make when, Uh, but it will make a difference, as we will see. In Genesis 12.1 simply records the call. It doesn't tell us when. And if we assume it comes chronologically after the previous verse, then God called Abram while he lived in Haran after his father's death. Genesis 11.32 says, The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Next verse, chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram. And yet there are two problems with this assessment. And the first is that uh, chapter 11, verse 26, seems to say that Terah was 70 years old when he fathered Abram. If Terah dies at 205 and Abram left Haran after his father's death, that makes Abram 135 when he first came to the promised land. But Genesis 12, verse 4, tells us that Abram was 75 years old when he came to the promised land, not 135. So that's problem number one with seeing these as strictly chronological. Problem number two, in Genesis fifteen seven, God says, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Now that seems to imply that Abram had already been called by God in Ur before he was in Haran and certainly before his father's death. In fact, Acts chapter 7 makes this explicit. In verses 2 and 3, Stephen said, Uh, this. He says, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. So, So God's at least initial call to Abram was when he lived in Ur before he came to Haran with his father. Now, Bible scholars have had different solutions for this question, and here's the way I see it. Genesis 12.1 uh, does not follow chronologically after Genesis 11.32. See, we, we impose the idea that one, must, one verse must follow chronologically the verse prior, but it's actually a kind of silly imposition. Uh, we would never do that with movies. And think about it. Uh, it. It's very possible that the writer wanted to wrap up Tara's story before going back and beginning Abraham's in earnest— And so he wraps up Terah's story, as it were, mentioning his death, and then he backs up to begin Abraham's story again at the beginning. The important thing to notice here is Abram left Haran when his father was still alive. Abram left when he was 75. His father did not die until Abram is 135 or was 135, and that was years later. Abram left Ur with his father, headed toward Haran, His father settled in Haran, but Abram decided to keep going. This brings us then to the third question and begins to answer the third question. Why was it so hard for Abram to leave? God called Abram to leave Ur and go to Canaan. Why is that so difficult? Well, God called Abram to leave everything. Notice again verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Leave everything you've ever known. Uh, someone suggested these three things imply everything that we today would say defines or limits a person, right? Their cultural context, their, their genes or ethnicity, or at least the, their ethnic group, and their nuclear family. God says to Abraham, Leave it all behind. That's not you anymore. Now, it would have been scary because it was leaving the known for the unknown. It would feel like death because it was leaving everything that he had known in life. But I want you to notice that this verse here in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, is just what we talk about as the call to discipleship. Jesus' call to discipleship is ultimately a call to stop defining ourselves by the categories of this age, national, ethnic, or familial, and to define ourselves by our relationship to him. Listen to Jesus' call in Luke 14, 26 and 33. Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has Cannot be my disciple. Now, Jesus is using a bit of hyperbole here. He doesn't want husbands to hate their wives, but he does want our love for Jesus to outshine and overshadow every other relationship. Jesus wants us to put him first, absolutely before all else. And this will make life hard. (laughs) In Matthew 10, Jesus says, Do not think, I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. Which is maybe not something you would expect Jesus to say. And he goes on, For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. We are called to define ourselves in light of Jesus, to prioritize Jesus above all else, to leave, as it were, our country, kindred, and Father's house and to go where Jesus will show us. Now, this break with our old lives may be lonely. It may be difficult. It may feel like death, but it is the path to life. And this is the heart of the idea of repentance. To leave your old life, to turn away from the old life, and to turn to Jesus and his purposes. To say, I am no longer defined by these things, good or bad, but from now on, I am going to be defined by my relationship to Jesus. And what does that make us? And how, how do we now define ourselves then? Well, Galatians 3, Paul says this, "...for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith." For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. If we are our Christ's, our ethnicity, our social status, our gender, these are not what define us in any ultimate sense. That doesn't mean they aren't real. It just means they aren't ultimate. We are Christ's, sons of God, Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And so stop defining yourself by your past. Uh, don't define yourself by any given cultural, ethnic, or familial categories. It's, it's not that we have to renounce our citizenship. But when you think about who you are, uh, American should not be the first thing that comes to mind. And it's purely coincidence that tomorrow's July 4th. And of course, if things which are neutral or even good should not define you, it goes without saying that sin no longer defines you either. Now those get trickier to leave behind, don't they? It's easier to leave a country than it is to leave your sin. How can we make that break? And the answer is you can break with sin because Christ broke sin's power for you. Jesus left his Father's house in heaven. He came into this present age. He took on a new identity, identifying with us, God become man, the sinless one identifying with sinners. And then Jesus went to the cross and died for sin, breaking the power of sin. The righteous one received the penalty of sin, which broke sin's power. And then because sin's power was broken, Jesus rose from the dead. Death no longer had power over him. Paul concludes from that, for those of us who are in Christ, united to Christ by faith in Romans six eleven. so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The old life has passed away. Behold, new has come, Paul says. So you can make a break with sin because Christ has broken the power of sin in the cross. Leave it behind and turn to Jesus, which brings us to our second point. So first, the prerequisite for the, the Christian life is, Heeding God's call to leave our old life. We cannot live a new life if we don't leave our old one. But second, the power for change, the power for the Christian life, believe God's promises. When we talk about change or leaving our old life behind, again, it gets hard. Uh, you might say, I- I've tried so many times, right? I've repented of this sin and that sin, but it won't go away. And maybe you start out strong. Maybe you give up somewhere along the way. You lose your motivation. You get tired. Change is hard. You you give up and look for something easy. What will motivate you to keep going? The answer is the promises of God. Notice God moves immediately from calling Abram in verse 1 to making promises in verse 2. And remember from last week, all of the promises of God are to and through Abram and his seed. These promises are given to Abram, and through Abram they are given to Jesus, and through Jesus they are given to us. Who are in Jesus by faith. And if the promises are ours as people who by faith are united to Jesus, the seed of Abraham, then we should know what those promises are. And we can uh, look at them here. We can summarize them under, under four headings, land, seed, glory, and blessing. The promise of land begins in verse 1. Uh, when, when God calls Abraham to leave his country, he says, go to the land that I will show you. Now it's pretty vague there, but God gets a little bit more specific down in verse 7. Now, once Abraham gets in Canaan, we read in verse 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. God promises Abram this land, the land of Canaan. And the rest of the story, right, as we will see, the rest of the story of Abram in that story, that the promise will go unfulfilled. Uh, Hebrews 11 points this out. Hebrews 11 verses 9 and 10: By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Hebrews 11:13 says of Abraham and his immediate descendants: These all died in faith, not having received the things promised having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Now, on the, on the one hand, their not having received is picked up in the story of the Exodus in the conquest of Canaan. Israel, uh, the Abraham's descendants, would later enter the promised land and receive it as what was promised. Now, J- Joshua 21 says this, uh, sort of concluding uh, the, the conquest of Canaan throughout the book of Joshua. Joshua 21 says this, "'Thus the Lord gave to Israel "'all the land that he swore to give to their fathers, "'and they took possession of it, "'and they settled there, "'and the Lord gave them rest on every side, "'just as, just as he had sworn to their fathers. "'Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, "'for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands.' Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. And yet, the writer of Hebrews is looking for something more. He says of the fulfillment in Joshua's day in Hebrews 4, 8 to 9, For if Joshua had given them rest, that is, in the land, God would not have spoken of another day later on so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. There, there is a rest in the land to come, the writer of Hebrews says. And the writer talks about this later on, uh, specifically with respect to Abraham, Abraham picking up in Hebrews 11, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one, Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. See, see, what was the promised land that Abraham was looking for? Not the land of Canaan, but a heavenly land. Not a city in Canaan, but the city of God. Paul puts it this way in Romans 4.13. He says, the promise of Abraham and his offspring was that he would be the heir of the world. Not just of Canaan, not a, not a city in Canaan, but the world. And then along comes Jesus, seed of Abraham. He leaves his father's house in heaven. He pilgrims in this life, and then he dies, leaving the land of the living altogether. But God raised him from the dead, and after his resurrection, he says to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. See, Jesus, the child of Abraham, has been given the land, not just the land of Canaan, but the whole earth, which means we live presently as pilgrims and strangers in the land of promise. And so that's promise number one is land. Now, promise number two is seed. We talked about this some last week, so we'll spend less time here. But God promised Abraham that he would become a great nation. And eventually he would in Israel. But later, God expands this promise that Abraham would become the father of many nations. How does that happen? Well, through Abraham's seed, Jesus. Jesus comes drawing all nations into the family of Abraham. And when we look on Jesus and believe, we become children of Abraham. Abraham is our father in the faith. And so Abraham has become the father of many nations. So promise number one is land. Promise number two is seed. Promise number three is glory. God says to Abraham, I will make your name great. And this is uh, actually ironic coming on the heels of chapter 11. Uh, You may remember in Genesis 11, people sought to make their name great by building a city and a tower. Well, now Abraham is cityless in the present age, but God will give him a name. And this is true on the surface of things. As we said last week, 4,000 years later, Abraham is looked to as the father of three of the world's largest religions. Abraham is the father of 14.7 million Jewish people and 1.9 billion Muslims and 2.3 billion Christians. And so about 4.5 billion people on the planet honor the name of Abraham. God kept his promise. But remember, the promises are to Abraham and his seed, and it is the seed of Abraham whose name is even greater. In this case, the son has exceeded the father. Paul says of Jesus, in light of his sin-defeating death, God has given him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus has received the name above all names. So the first promise is of land, the second is seed, the third is glory, and the fourth is blessing. And this really summarizes a couple of things that we've already said. God says to Abraham, I will bless you. Your name will be great, and you will be a blessing, meaning people will use Abraham's name as a blessing, as in may you or may I be blessed like Abraham. God would bless those who bless Abraham, and God will curse the one who dishonors Abraham, and in Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, we'll look more at this blessing a little bit next week, but God would not only bless Abraham, but use him as a channel of blessing to the nations. God's narrowing down of his intentions uh, to one single person out of millions does not mean that God was abandoning the nations. Rather, from the start, he had a plan to bless the nations through one man, through Abraham and his seed. God sent Jesus to bless the nations through his death for sin and his resurrection from the dead. And now all who bless themselves in Jesus, who look for blessing in Jesus, are blessed in him. Now, Why is it so important for us to think about and meditate on these promises, or in general, the promises of God? Well, first, they they are for us. Uh, We've been taken up into Abraham's story through Jesus, and so we should know the inheritance that we have in Jesus. But second, the promises of God are what empower us to live the Christian life. Uh, Notice God commands Abraham to go, and then he immediately begins to make promises. And immediately after Abraham receives those promises, he goes. And it makes sense, right? There, there were some significant obstacles to things happening. Sarai, for starters, was barren, according to Genesis 11, verse 30. How would Abraham become a great nation if he couldn't even have a single child? Verse 6 tells us that the Canaanites were in the land. How would Abraham inherit the land when there were already nations living there? And if Abraham was to remain childless and homeless, how could he possibly receive a great name and bless the nations? What sense does it make to leave home and family not knowing where you are going or what's going to happen when you get there? And the answer is the promises of God. God made promises. Abraham believed them. He didn't have to fear. He didn't have to worry. He didn't have to fret. Abraham didn't have to figure it out. He didn't have to make it work. He didn't have to forge his own destiny. He only had to hold on tight to God's promises. What will embolden you to step out and follow God in obedience? Even when the world seems against you, even when it's lonely, even when the obstacles seem too numerous. The promises of God. Now this is what Peter says in 2 Peter 1, 3-4. He says, God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them You may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. See, the promises of God used by the Holy Spirit are the power to live the Christian life. Now, we don't have a call to Canaan, uh, but we do have a call to follow Jesus, to conform our life to his, to take up our cross and follow him. And if you are struggling in the Christian life, if you're ready to give up, if you feel like you've failed one too many times, turn to God's promises Familiarize yourself with God's promises and believe them. Take God at His word. He's not going to give up on you. He's not going to abandon you. He's going to see things through to the end. Rest in the fact that no matter how many times you may fail, God's promises will not. And we'll see this tested in Abraham's story. And we'll see what happens when we don't take God at His word. But you'll have to stay tuned for that. So, first, we talked about the prerequisite for the Christian life, heeding God's call to leave our old life. We cannot live a new life if we don't leave our old one. A second, the power for change in the Christian life, believe God's promises, take God at his word, trust him. Third, the content of the Christian life, worship in the meantime. What does it mean to do something in the meantime? Uh, If we're going to go out after lunch, but in the meantime, do yard work, it means between now and lunch, between those two points, we are going to work. It's a kind of casual saying, right, in the meantime. Now sometimes it may seem to be talking about something unimportant, but not necessarily. A meantime means the intervening time, the period of time between two events, between this moment and something that will happen in the future. Now, God made Abraham great promises. He would give him a great land and make him a great nation and give him a great name and through him bring great blessing. But those promises were not yet fulfilled. He was a pilgrim in a foreign land, having no children to his name, being a relative of nobody. God has promised, but God's promises were as yet unfulfilled. Abraham would have to wait. Abraham's story is a story of waiting, waiting for God to act. In the New Testament, we are told that we await the coming of Jesus from heaven. We wait for God to make all things new. We await the day when God will complete his work in us. But with all this talk of waiting, you might get the impression that the Christian life is passive, but nothing could be further from the truth. And so as we await the fulfillment of God's promises, the coming of Jesus and the renewal of all things, what are we to do in the meantime? And the answer, of course, is worship. Notice what Abraham does when he gets to the land. He goes straight to what might have already been shrines in Canaan, Shechem, the Oak of Morah, Bethel, and he begins to build altars there to the Lord to dedicate his life and this land to Yahweh. Offerings uh, were done for various reasons. Some were, strictly speaking, sin offerings, but others, while never losing a flavor of atonement if they were blood sacrifices, they had other meanings as well. The whole burnt offering was symbolic of offering the whole self up to God. Abraham was going through the land, dedicating himself and the land to Yahweh, moving all the way down to the Negev, the southern border of Israel, so that the whole land from north to south was consecrated to God. And the application to our life is easy. God has given us great promises in Jesus as children of Abraham, promises of being a part of a great nation, dwelling in a new creation, worshiping the one whose name is above uh, every name, finding our blessing in him. And we participate in parts of that now, but we await the fullness in the age to come. Well, what do we do in the meantime? We dedicate our whole lives to God and to his purposes. And this should not be understood in some kind of a limited way. The language of worship in the Bible often simply means to serve. We are to serve God with our whole lives as the burnt offerings symbolized. We are to offer up our everything to him. We are to do that even when the promises seem far off, even when the obstacles seem great, even when we get discouraged, even when we are alone or the world seems against us. That is the Christian life. It may not be easy, but it is simple. We can summarize that, really, all that we've said in three words. It's it's repent, believe, and obey. Or putting it uh, a little more in the language of Abraham, leave your old life. Take God at his word. Trust his promises and worship him in the meantime. Serve him with everything you have and everything that you are. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would help us to do just that. You would help us to leave our old life behind, to take you at your word, trust your promises, and worship you in the meantime. We pray that in that you would be glorified. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.